Hello, dear listeners. You're listening to Voices at Play, a tabletop RPG podcast featuring marginalized people playing and discussing games made by marginalized creators. Today is our first ever roundtable discussion episode. With me, I have everyone who has run the game for our current episode cycle as Game Facilitator, commonly called the Game Master or GM. So please allow me to introduce Marquez. Hi, I'm Marquez. My pronouns are he, him. You can find me online at MarquezTheGM on Twitter. I am a content creator and GM for Tabletop Potluck, another actual play podcast. You can find us on any social media platform at Tabletop Potluck. And Alexis. Hello, I'm Alexis. My pronouns are she or they. And you can find me at Game Seizure on Twitter where I occasionally post about tabletop role-playing games. I've been role-playing and GMing for over a decade now, but currently I'm just doing some game design on the side as a hobby myself, and you can see more of that on the Twitter. Awesome, I look forward to seeing some of that. M. Hi, I'm M. My pronouns are they, them, and you can find me on Twitter at SketchMouseArt. I do mostly art and cosplay and sometimes dabble in tabletops game design. And Atlas? Hi, I'm Atlas. My pronouns are he and Thon. You can find me on Twitter at Kobold Time. I don't know, That that's it. That's fine. <laughs> it's all good. Algie? Hi, I'm Algie. My pronouns are any pronouns, all of the pronouns. You can find me on Twitter at 11 thirds or on Tumblr at equals 11 thirds. And this is the only project I am currently involved in. And we thank you for it. Sarah. Oh, hello. My name is Sarah or Milmo. My pronouns are she or they. You can find me on Twitter at heart underscore of underscore time. I'm a comic artist and a writer and I'm currently working on NPCT, which is an indie comic book. It's also the best comic you'll ever read. You should all be reading Shut it. Up. It's so good. <laughs> no, don't compliment me. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of this comic book. Um, it's okay. Just ignore Sarah I'm while like, she I'm slowly, dissolves. like, yeah, I'm, I'm turning into a little black hole in on myself. Which is my, my usual response to people being nice. So thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Last but not least, today we also have Amr. Hey, I'm Amr. My pronouns are they, them. You can find me at Twitter or on Discords all across the internet at Amaraz. And I work on a bunch of game design projects that will hopefully be talked about soon. The biggest one that I talk about right now is Chimera, which you can find at Chimera RPG. And it's a Powered by the Apocalypse project, which aims to blend different genres together and allow you to customize your own game experience and select which genres you want to mix for the specific game. Also, do this podcast here, which you should listen to, because I think it's good. And maybe some other podcasts will follow me on Twitter for news. And you'd hope that if they're hearing this, they're listening <laughs> and should continue to do so. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining me today for this. I am Ray. My pronouns are he, him. You can find me on Twitter behind the account for Voices at Play under Voices at, as well as Dark Dragons Inn, the account for my other podcast, Tales from the Dark Dragons Inn. You can learn more about that at tftddi.co.uk. 
Today, I'll be facilitating this discussion, as I did not GM, and we'll be talking in depth about the game we've recently focused on, Interstitial, Our Hearts Intertwined, by Riley Hopkins of Linksmith Games. Interstitial was designed using the Powered by the Apocalypse design philosophy. I'm sure that will come up, but games of this nature are often, but not always, categorized by the use of playbooks, which define character archetypes, and the resolution of moves using two six-sided dice, resulting in failure, success, or partial success, often with dangerous consequences, the results of which serve to generate a collective narrative. Empowered by the apocalypse, you play to find out what happened. So, let's find out what happened. Before we get going, I do want to clarify that we played this game in a pre-release state, which, whilst feature complete, did have some issues that have since been addressed, but we'll still likely cover an encounter today. To start with, I'd like to open with a question for those of you who were playing an Apocalypse System game for the first time. I'll also direct this question initially to M. So, what were your first thoughts when reading through this system, comparing it with your previous game experiences? And how easy was it to adapt your previous experience to running a game of interstitial? Well, this was my first part by the Apocalypse experience, and I was really excited when I started reading about it, because I'm very interested in more narrative-driven games, and it outright said that there's not really a focus on combat, that combat is supposed to move the story forward, and I'm like, yes! And then you made your one-shot primarily focused (laughs) on combat. Yeah, that ended up happening. Spiders just kept appearing. I think one of the things I noticed was with the system, since it does say use yes and, and go with that, and there's that world building between the players and the GM, instead of the GM having a pre-written world, which I thought was really interesting, because you have to release the reins of it. I know when I talk about world building with people who are familiar with D&D, they usually have their whole world written out ahead of time, and in the system it's not so much the play to find out what happens, as you said. So who else was playing Powered by the Apocalypse for the first time? I know that Algy was, and I believe Sarah... I hadn't played it before. I'm quite new to tabletop games and GMing. <laughs> so it was a new experience for me all around, really. I think my only real experiences had been Pathfinder and Honey Heist and then uh, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so it's a bit of a jump and I'd listen to people playing Monster of the Week and I suppose reading through it, it was just like, is this it? Oh, oh, okay. Which is kind of freeing in a way. You know, if you're used to Dungeons and Dragons with these huge, massive tomes, guides of how to play and all the different monsters and everything. Yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system. It was was interesting. Good in some ways, a bit confusing in others, I suppose. That's totally fair. How about you, LG? What was your overall experience encountering the system for the first time? Well, this was the first time I'd ever played with Powered by the Apocalypse. I've listened to a few games before. So I've read through a few different Powered by the Apocalypse games, but this is my first time of trying to use the system and seeing it in use. And that was very cool. It was exciting. I know that it's very much about improvisation and yes and, and sort of making things up and narrative driven, which is fun. A little intimidating after mostly playing Dungeons and Dragons because there's so many rules in that. Yeah. It feels both like taking the training wheels off and also being let out of your cage. Yes. It's interesting, actually, because it didn't occur to me the fact that you've read previous Powered by the Apocalypse systems, and I think that puts you in an interesting position for the roundtable, in that you had never played them, but you had previously read them, so you did have 
some things to compare it to. And in that sense, I'll open up the conversation a bit more broadly to Armour. As somebody who has previously played presumably a number of Powered by the Apocalypse systems, knowing how prolific you are, what sort of things does interstitial do that you didn't expect and what doesn't it do that you would have expected or liked to see more mm, that's an interesting question so i think the main thing interstitial does which i think is one of its biggest draws is it pulls very solidly from a lot of powered by the apocalypse games from across multiple waves of Powered by the Apocalypse design. It even pulls things from a lot of the older Powered by the Apocalypse games in its design. And it makes it a really good game as an introductory to Powered by the Apocalypse because it bases itself so strongly in that foundation. And it really allows a new player to get a quick tour of Powered by the Apocalypse without being intimidating because the concept is very friendly to new people who aren't as familiar with Powered by the Apocalypse or RPGs in general. It's very accessible in general. Yeah. Second question you were asking is what? What sort of things didn't the game do that you either anticipated it would have or wish it would have, I suppose? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one thing I would have perhaps liked a little bit more of was support for using links to pull characters back in. Because we had a lot of situations where we had characters who the players made links with, and then those characters went off, and the players were like, I'm going to use that link because it makes sense in this moment or because I don't need that connection with that character anymore. And I wish there was a way to bind the characters back in or weave them more into the narrative through the links explicitly. I think maybe that's also perhaps a weakness of the game in terms of one-shots, maybe? I don't know if anyone else would agree with that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that the links you want to form in a way that the player doesn't feel, oh, I can just get rid of that now, because they might be under the impression of, well, hey, I'm going to actually have an interaction with that person later on. In a one shot, it's much easier to simply go, ah, I don't need it. I'll spend the link with whoever because I don't care what happens to them. The link system is unique to interstitial, right? Absolutely is, yes. Because I know that between our group, we were like, oh no, is it for Power by the Apocalypse as well? Going off the question about what interstitial does as a game that other Powered by the Apocalypse games don't is, in fact, making those relationships you have with everyone that you meet and as well as your other player characters really matter. Uh, a lot of the other Powered by the Apocalypse games, they have it during character creation where you form these relationships and bonds, but there are many Powered by the Apocalypse games where that's the end of where your relationship with other people and other characters has a mechanical weight to it masks is a superhero teenage superhero game has influence which does a similar thing but that's also just a a currency rather than with these links which are very important for certain roles for how you view other characters and i think that that's a very good unique thing if you don't mind i'll uh just stop there because one thing that rest of you won't know and i only know because i have quite a unique position in that i have heard all of your games the link system as Sarah pointed out, is unique to interstitial. And it's something that I would love for us to talk about a bit more, purely because I think 
especially in the pre-release state, some of the things about links were not very clearly defined. And because of that, every single game, we have interpreted how those links work and should be used differently. And what's interesting is they work. It doesn't matter how you interpret the link system rules, because it seems like no matter how you interpret them, they will function to the game you want to play, because at their core, they're about relationships, right? I wanted to hook onto this because talking about what is unique about the system, it's the link system. And I think, at least in our two games, we had a bit of a struggle realizing what the links are, what they're meant to be used. And I don't actually remember at any point anyone actively thinking or using them much. When I was reading the pre-release PDF, the section sadly was, in my opinion, rather unclear. We made it work. I tried to point out having NPCs and interplayer links. And I feel, for us at least, it realized our relationships to these characters and NPCs. What I would like to see more out of the system is more use beyond defining a relationship. And I think this game wanted to do that. Got limit breaks and spending a link. And perhaps this was an issue with us playing one-shots instead of a longer campaign. Um, but I feel like certainly the link system ended up underutilized in our games. So with the link system, I think because it's a completely new mechanic, and as you say in the pre-release, there were certain aspects of it which were not very well defined, that makes it very easy to simply discard it. Especially when you're used to playing games like D&D, where if you don't like a rule, you just house rule it and shuffle it away. I think with the link system, it's a tool that you can use very strongly, or you can use it loosely to give people a little bit of power here and there. It can be the core of your game, or you can barely touch on it and it still won't necessarily affect things. The one issue I think could perhaps arise is if the GM doesn't emphasize the system, mm -hmm. the players are not going to take up on it. Most players are partially passive and if the system isn't explained in the book or emphasized in the book enough, people will just forget about it while playing. And I think that's what happened in my game, at least. I'd actually like to ask Atlas, because I thought the way you interpreted the link system was really interesting. In the game that Marquez ran for my group, we used links primarily as interpreters. If I roll a dark link, I now have a dark relationship, and we just changed the way we were behaving towards that character. But you did something interesting with links, and it was sort of like you interpreted them through the Power by the Apocalypse lens. Could you explain to me the link system as you view it? Yeah, the thing about links, there's a lot of thing about links. I think it's a very interesting system that maybe isn't completely fleshed out, but it's definitely, in my opinion, the most interesting thing about the game, other than the setting and idea, because I think that will draw a lot of people in. But I think of the mechanics of the game, it's the most interesting thing. Specifically, what I found really interesting in play was the front side of the link stuff, which is the defining relationships of the characters. We definitely didn't use the back side of them where you spend links very much, which I feel sort of bad about and we definitely tried to 
I tried to help retcon as a player in our second game. I tried to keep reminding people to do it. We definitely forgot about it in the thing, and I think that's partly because it wasn't clearly defined what you could do. In the pre-release example, it says you can use them for advantage, retcons, or XP, but all the examples had you re-rolling ones, so I think that was just like an inconsistency there. That's fair. So I didn't really focus on that part. I focused on the part that was interesting to me, which was the beginning part, and I actually wanted to engage with it because I was really nervous about it to begin with, because if you fail your link roll, the GM gets to decide what kind of link you get. So I felt like when I was reading it, like it takes away a lot of player agency and that it goes against a lot of story games place in a lot of ways. It moved very much against that where you don't get to define your relationships yourself. They're defined by players at the table and by the GM in a lot of ways. And but when, when we did it in play, especially for a one shot, I actually found it very satisfying and very interesting to assign those links and change the relationships. We rolled links a lot pretty much anytime anyone met anybody. And I, that was partly because it was a one shot. So I wanted to get that system out there because I definitely wanted to try out the system because I was unsure about it. And assigning links, defining the relationships was really compelling in a way. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to assign links to NPCs, but I did anyway because it seemed a game based on relationships. It seems appropriate, right? Yeah, it, the game based Based on relationships, the NPC should also have a relationship. I got to change the way that NPCs reacted to the characters based on the links they rolled. It kind of reminded me of early D&D. There was uh, reaction rolls, reacting to how the players act. It, you roll and you there's a chart of friendly, hostile, which is super not how I'd want to play a game because I like interacting with NPCs. But the idea of you do a little interaction and then you cut it off with a roll to see how those interactions affected the characters in a way actually turned out to be really fun for me and I really enjoyed it. The one thing that you did that I didn't see anyone else do specifically was you had not only was it oh you have a dark link with them now but you encouraged your players actively to be like why do you have a dark link and so uh, one of your players might be like oh i have a dark link with that person because they've been really haughty and blah 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 and then you'd say okay now make that into a sentence and it's almost like you turned it into dungeon world bonds yeah a lot of the games i play and a lot of games i design are very player interactive when i gm i specifically don't want to be in charge of everything. I want the, my players to be part of it as well, because that's what I enjoy about role-playing games is the collaborative storytelling. I think that partly comes because I was worried about taking away player agency, but also partly because I don't want to tell the whole story. I want everyone else to be as involved with the story as I am, even if I'm the GM. I think it was also quite good because in terms of people having their relationships framed, it made it much more concrete. In the first game we played, you know, I have a dark link with that person, so now I know I'm going to be hostile towards them or unhappy with them or whatever. Whereas when you said, okay, now think about that relationship, explain it to me and put it into a phrase, that made it so much more concrete in that, you know, you had a player who was was now saying, character X thinks too little of me and I will prove them wrong. And I felt like that really actually took the link system to the next level in a way, in that it really drove the narrative aspect of it quite strongly. I really like that. That sounds really cool. And I'm so excited to listen to that game now. <laughs> One of the things that came up is how a thing that happened is making links with everyone we've met. Uh, and that's a thing that I don't know how many other groups happened. It's happened, uh, happened in most of the games, I, in both the games. Full disclosure, I've played Interstitial three times before this. Yeah, I also played it in development. That's been a consistent thing. And while it has been useful for defining those relationships, I think something I noticed that would be interesting to try to work around is how I feel like it can sometimes cause the game to come to a pause, especially if there are multiple characters introduced in the scene. I, I would agree. 
there's okay so there's three of us and we're making bonds with two to three different people so now we gotta stop for six to nine roles uh yeah that's true now that you mention it more than one character you're sitting there for 10 minutes doing this and i think what was just talked about with making the sentences and trying to make it more narrative can definitely help make that entertaining so that would be an interesting way to try to keep that process still flowing as people are rolling one thing you can do with that if you find that it's coming to a situation where every time somebody is met they form a bond immediately is perhaps encourage players to wait till a moment in the conversation where they feel like that character might have had an emotional response yeah because there were certainly times in some of the games i noticed where people were like i want to form a bond with that and then other people would chime in because they'd been reminded that link system existed rather than it being a narratively driven thing yeah i got that as well like if you had a defining moment of that conversation or in that scene and you thought oh no this is when you're gonna build a relationship or a link i think that was just a symptom of having such short games that you felt like we have to go through the rigmarole of doing that I think it would just depend on the group that you were playing with, I think, how you'd want to play that. I would agree. I mean, I just had the idea that uh, we've been talking about links being made when you meet someone. Mm -hmm. I think that's partially because that's how it's written in the book, right? Yeah, but what just came through my head is if I would run this as a campaign now, I think I'd focus on links that are made out of like more long-lasting relationships or at least what the players would like to engage with instead of like having every npc be someone you need to make a link with maybe i would leave this to the players you know just remind them occasionally but leave it to the players to be like i like this person or dislike this person i have this relationship with them maybe push it into the links being like important relationships because that's what i read out of the like flavor out of the book is that the links are your important relationships with someone well i feel like the idea of locked links in the game and of changing links is sort of the longer term relationships locked links are obviously more important than regular links but that's more sort of a long campaign thing like you don't change your relationship after one day with a person i would love to see this play out in a much longer campaign but that's obviously not not for this format i know there's a podcast of it and i'm totally going to listen to it i just didn't want to like listen to it just yet yeah that's fair especially if you were trying to avoid being influenced by other people's understanding of it especially as the creator of that game is in that podcast i think we have quite a lot of advantage in that a lot of people in this group were coming to it from their own understanding of reading the book i think m may have been influenced by a certain podcast <laughs> maybe a little i like the link system a lot I just had a like a little bit of confusion about things like when can you lock a link? I couldn't find that as like a good answer in the text. Yeah, there wasn't one. The locked links thing is clarified much, much better now. That was a huge confusion. Looking at the exact text of the move, it's when you meet someone for the first time or make an emotional breakthrough with someone you already know. And it sounds like we were kind of leaning towards almost not having that first half of the move and focusing more on the emotional breakthrough element. But so then the thing that comes to mind is, it seems like there's almost a duality here in that, one, we really enjoy the aspect of links being these powerful emotional driving factors to relationships and to helping set them in more concrete moments and crystallize breakthrough moments. But there's also the aspect of links as a currency that you're meant to kind of be trading to gain advantage and gain XP and manipulate the canon. So if you're only doing it on those big moments, you have 
fewer links to do that with, you know? That is, I found, from a GM perspective, Marquez, how do you feel we handled the link system overall? Because there was only two players in our game. That's uh, that's another influencing factor. I kept asking you if you wanted to spend <laughs> a link in order to re-roll a failure or to not. We rolled so badly in that game. And yet you all were just like, no, I like my links. I don't want to spend them. <laughs> and so then you failed. I think I only spent a link so that I would not kill Gonzo. I think that was the only time I spent a link. <laughs> As a player in that game, I think when we did spend links, like we'd make a link with somebody, spend the link, and then we could make a new link if we met them again, which is a mechanic, in, I think is a mechanic. We did change links quite a few times as well. Yes. yes. We did quite a lot of changing links, not necessarily spending them, but it's just like, oh... This person I was being super friendly with, I'm now being very angry with. When you changed links, did you re-roll them? Or I'm curious how that worked out. Yes, we were re-rolling. Yeah, that is how you lock a link, is if you already have a link with someone, and then your relationship with them changes, and you need to change your link, you roll for it, and if you get a 10+, plus, oh, then okay. it becomes the new link that you've chosen, and it's locked. Speaking of that, like I really like that where changing links is where you lock it, but I could not find any sort of mechanic for strengthening an already existing relationship to lock it. Is that something in the re-release, or is that just... It's playbook-specific sometimes. You can do that for certain playbooks. Uh, That's actually a good question. Has anyone had the impression that these changes to links is supposed to be motivated by roleplay or by choice? I think it's supposed to be by roleplay. Certainly people could manipulate that to make it a choice but i think it's supposed to be roleplay based this is supposed to be narrative driven right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i think like the gm could say hey it sounds like through this conversation you're having your link might be changing with this character would you like to roll to change your link or you could say i think i'm gonna have to make you roll to change your link if it's really obvious and you can fight back you can have a conversation about that that's all fine it's always a conversation but i also think that you as a player have the opportunity I think it's just like anything else. If you are driving the conversation, you're like, and I would like to change my link with this person. You could definitely do that. Or the GM might be like, I'm going to have to make you do that. So I think it could just be definitely through play. But if it is by choice, make sure that's narratively relevant. One thing I wanted to touch on is, Alexis, how did you feel the game's design influenced, not necessarily just the link system, but the design as a whole? How did you feel it influenced your ability to prep for running a game of Interstitial? Well, as I said, we had a pre-release version, so some of the document was um, partially complete. And as such, I was grasping at something to hook myself on. There's, in the final version, there's a little bit about a possible setting, etc. But I read through that and kind of disregarded it as we wanted to try something unique, all of us, I presume. I remember that I think the most second unique thing about this game is that it allows you to use any pre-existing setting, you know, pulling from media. I only know one game that's that has a similar concept, but it's using the cipher system and as such is way more mechanic savvy. Here, you don't need to have everything mechanically and rule-based when you're in entering worlds or characters from your favorite media. 
And as such, I decided personally to do something loosely based on Ghibli movies and, and wanted to have characters inspired by it. I was also considering just plopping in real characters from media, like pre-existing ones. Um, I was afraid that would maybe obscure the players playing a lot. Like when you meet a famous character, you probably already have pre-existing context for it. And I think that's on one hand, the strength of this system, as well as its wobbly legs, is that as a GM, you do have to create some sort of narrative cohesion. You don't have to have like a world building cohesion. This is kind of a bit like all over the place as such, and you can really go wild with it. And I think that's an advantage. I think this is good for people who maybe aren't invested in mechanics when it comes to role playing games, or otherwise people are just not invested in role playing games in general. This is something you can run with a group of teenagers, a group of children, a group of adults who never played a role-playing game before. Considering how quickly we made characters, I think everyone will agree that character creation is like just like that. I think this is a good system for engaging with people, and the fact that you can pull from media will help with that. You don't have to like wreck your head about making a character. You don't have to wreck your head as a GM about world-building or what's the background, what's the NPCs. You can just plop him a video game or your favorite show and just run with it. And I think a lot of people would like that kind of thing. Um, uh, Sarah, um, I think your game was very interesting in that aspect and that was loose-based. Like, how, how did you like making your game? Thanks. I based it on Treasure Planet. So that kind of setting. So it wasn't exactly Treasure, treasure Planet because I felt the same in that if it was going to be the Treasure Planet film or you know treasure island everyone knows that story i kind of wanted to create new things in a new situation i think what really helped with me was how many people here were familiar with kingdom hearts when they read this because that really helped me <laughs> i was yeah to, to think of it as that kind of as if it was just like one level from kingdom hearts i just keep going back to the fact that it was a one shot because it's just it was really difficult to because when you go through the whole book it's like it's all loose everybody's making it all together but then also as gm you have to pull it all in together and it's your story but then it's also everyone's story and i found that a really difficult thing to come to terms with in this entire thing and i really was trying hard not to railroad people but felt like I was doing that a lot of the time. So did you feel when you were first reading through the text then that it's the emphasis on your players have more agency in this game was quite daunting or? Yeah, it wasn't particularly, I don't think it was daunting. I don't know. It's difficult to tell because I have so little experience outside of Dungeons and Dragons and I'm kind of used to my players throwing me a loop every five seconds. <laughs> I'm going to be a bit contrary here and I really appreciate what this game was trying to do and maybe it was my lack of experience in that I really like the idea that it was based on relationships and I like the idea that it was like I'm a pacifist and I like that it wasn't based around combat but I just felt so much of it was quite superfluous. <laughs> I didn't really get on with the link system that much. Sometimes it felt like, because in so many parts of this book, they were saying, oh, well, yeah, here are the rules, but also just make it up. <laughs> so I was like, well, why do I have a book in the first place? Which one place? is it going to be? 
then. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I suppose in a way, when you read it, it's basically just pick and choose what you like, I think is the is, is the general consensus that they're going to go for. But I think the more that I listen to it, the more I think, well, if I had to run like a long game in this, I think it would be interesting. I wouldn't say that I would like it. I think another element is maybe I've just got it wrong in that I just think I didn't like the idea of putting a lot of emphasis on relationships, but at the same time that they're currency. Particularly, I find that a really weird dichotomy. You mentioned using in the game those links in like some sort of boss fight or something, like a very big moment. And one thing I noticed while looking at the books, another thing of Powered by the Apocalypse, is that a lot of the powers are those like big moment spells or abilities. A lot of them tend to be, I have to get everyone together or I'm spending a link because I have to fight the big bad. Uh, some of my players have managed to use out of these powers in a very mundane situation, but my game didn't have a big bad. My, my, my game's big bad was a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so you're sort of saying the, the playbook moves seem like they all need quite escalated situations to be engaged. The abilities seem to be aimed at a big situation and i think that is valid because the inspiration is kingdom hearts where everything is up to 11 everyone needs to come together it's the big bad etc that's kind of preserved in the game like you can see the influence from kingdom hearts i didn't play it and i can see it there's the standard moves which can be called on fairly frequently but the, the moves that make your character unique require such high escalation right they yeah that's kind of what i was going at they require some sort of high situation we ended up using the basic moves a lot did anyone have combat how did that go i didn't i didn't see it um <laughs> yes there were spiders a lot of spiders <laughs> we murdered spiders it started with one spider, and then something bad went for the, the miss on a roll. It ended up creating more spiders. <laughs> so combat actually went on longer than I expected it would, but how I worked that was that the, the boss spider was the one that had where boxes marked off a piece of paper, and every time there was a successful hit on it, I checked one off, the minions that it summoned would have like one hit each. As for how combat actually worked, I liked it a lot because I'm used to D&D where the roleplay kind of stops once combat starts and everything becomes a numbers game where it was more like, okay, here the spider is charging you. What are you going to do about that situation? The players react and then the DM react. It felt like this fun back and forth between the characters and the side of the spiders. That's what I thought about it. I spent most of that fight talking to an NPC. Yes. I love that you can talk to people while you're fighting them in this game. I think in the game that I ran, there was combat, but nobody was trying to kill anybody. There was also an octopus. There was also an octopus. <laughs> During the combat, I think that, yeah, I think all the players were trying to like either distract people or talk them into changing their sides or whatever. That's not a thing you do in D&D, really. I like it as well that, you know, with D&D, there's always a moment with everybody roll initiative, which is always a bit awkward because it's kind of like, and now RP stop time to roll dice. <laughs> Whereas here, I think um, we didn't have combat, but we did have somebody, a character slap somebody else. And there was little bits of conflict. Whereas if I was GMing D&D, &D, I would be like, right, initiative, folks, even though it's kind of inappropriate. You can slip in and out of battle like nothing. To kind of bring us back to Alexis's point about a lot of the playbook moves being bigger moves, bigger moment moves, 
I think there's an interesting point with PBTA in that a lot of what the players choose as moves signposts the type of situations they want to get in. And playbooks, and because I haven't looked at all the playbooks in depth, just the one that I played and the ones my players had, some of the playbooks, like when playbooks have options of moves that can be used in mundane situations, the friend has a move that can buff up your allies or use disguises, or big moves like the ones that let you summon someone for a big occasion by spending a link. The choice you make between those moves signals the kind of situations you want to be in, because you're saying, I want to be in a situation to use these moves. If you take the disguise move, you're saying, I want a situation where I can use disguises. I think that's certainly something you have to be aware of as a GM. And it's not just the moves that you choose, it's also the playbook that you choose, because some of these playbooks are very much big on combat. They always warn you as well. It's like, this book is designed for you to hit people. If you want to hit people a lot, this is the book you want to play. Circling back around to prep stuff, and this is going to sound really negative, I did genuinely like this game, and I probably will play it again, but I think the GM stuff for this game was pretty bad. Yes! My god. Sorry, yeah, same. I agree. I wouldn't say bad, it's just not there. Yeah. yeah. Even in terms of like Powered by the Apocalypse, which tends to not be heavy GM stuff, it was very bad. Give me descriptions of GM principles. Please. And give me descriptions yes. of GM's moves. Just a few, like a paragraph of an example, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does everyone agree that a lot of the principles in this book is... Just wing it. Yeah, that's what yes. it felt like. And for some, that could be very daunting. And for some, that could be very freeing. It all depends on what type of person you are. But yes. Yeah, I think GM style definitely is important. I liked it, but I know that a lot of people would hate this. I have a friend who would abhorrently hate this because how to plan, but you have nothing there. <laughs> I mean, I think there's part of that that is what Powered by the Apocalypse games are. There's only so much planning you can do. And so that there's a level of, if you don't like Powered by the Apocalypse games, you're not going to like this game. And I don't think we can fault this game for the system that it's in. In the context of it being a Powered by the Apocalypse game, this is missing a lot of stuff. Specifically, the GM moves there's and the GM principles, there's not an explanation for either of those, which is something that I find very helpful. I personally don't click with Powered by the Apocalypse games, I think, in the way I think a lot of people do, where they just sort of understand it and can reform it from there the system doesn't necessarily gel with me in that way so i find stuff like that where like examples and explanations of things really helpful and there were a few that i called out as being specifically kind of weird and didn't make sense like do something off screen feels really weird why would you not show the players something and have something happen off screen and so did like change the answer because that's like false information and i don't even know what remove a magical condition is supposed to mean like so as a follow-up question to that do you feel like from a design perspective perhaps the person writing it has made some assumptions about what you understand about powered by the apocalypse coming into this yes oh. yeah, if- i think not about what i understand about powered by the apocalypse but how i play games yeah i was going to agree on that i think this assumes a very specific kind of gm and player like i use the pre-made setting and i know i'm the only one who used it so i'll try to be brief about this but the pre-made setting the the like stuff in it really emphasizes this in a way where it was like an interesting setting but it was missing a lot of the details that actually made it playable it explained the past of the setting but nothing about what was currently happening in the setting in a way that would make 
what players might get up to and what they might run into. Um, there are a lot of like simple things that were missing. Like what is the tech level of this world? There were a lot of names that were buried in descriptions of other characters. Some of that is trying to leave that open for you. I think the world that is given to you as a setting isn't there as it's not a supplement or a guide per se, so much as this is the outlines of a world and here's some of the history kind of thing. I think that that the way it is set up is a mistake for the game because it doesn't give you an example of what you actually need to play the game, which is what pre-written settings are for. They're for like, here, you don't have time or you don't have the energy to build your own world. So here is a world that you can just jump in and play in. And that's not what this is. One of our games is a perfect example of this. So I was going to mention this when you were talking about, you know, uh, how because you can use an existing franchise, it's really easy as a GM to simply go, great, I know everything about that game. That's where we're playing. Some people will go, okay, but what if your players don't know anything about that world? The answer to that is, great. Uh, M ran The Legend of Zelda in Hyrule. None of their players have ever played Ocarina of Time. What? (laughs) All of the people playing in M's game were like, Princess Zelda? Oh, she's an elf? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, it's a perfect example of, you don't have time to play? Great. Think about your favorite book. You think yeah. about your favorite video game, your favorite film. That's your story now. That's where your players are playing. Go nuts. I just want to say that despite all these misgivings, and I do, uh, this is a game that really excites me. Every time I think about this game, I just go, but what if I played this character? Or what if I played that character? Or what if I ran yes. it in this world? What if I ran it in that world? And it is... Absolutely. Uh, it is it just excites me to a level that I just I, I get very happy about this game's existence, even with all my misgivings. So, so I will would like to say that. Um, and that's my piece. I do have a uh, thing that I want to it's based on advancement. And I think it's a thing that's powered by the apocalypse problem, but the game doesn't tackle it in any way. And it's that advancements don't really feel relevant until until that third one but that's again uh, a powered by the apocalypse thing because some powered by the apocalypse systems do make advancement seem relevant but i think if you took advancements out of this game you could still have this game exist and it would be wonderful with that said though as a person who used all of the advancements early on to pull moves from other playbooks I enjoy taking moves from other playbooks in this game more than I enjoy anything. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. the, I think the moves from other playbooks is actually more interesting than the advanced move, which I think is the fourth advancement or whatever it is. I think it depends on your playbook, right? For a one-shot especially, there were a lot of advanced moves where I was like, this isn't ever going to be relevant for this four-hour game we're going to play. Oh, also Link moves. Link moves are very similar in that regard, where it's just like, for one-shot... Link moves are pretty confusing. Yeah. I think if the player hasn't paid attention to how they trigger, you are not going to get anyone using them effectively. I actually um, wrote something down about that because I was a little confused. Because it seemed like some of the wording they were supposed to trigger in a specific instance, but also early on in the rules, I read it triggers on when you roll a 10. I think a lot of what this conversation has come down to is that, for better or for worse, this is rooted deeply in a lot of powered by the apocalypse ideology and kind of familiarity and if you have a gm who is familiar with parody of the apocalypse this system is probably one of the best ways to give the players a quick 
tour of most powered by the apocalypse technology that is out there and get people familiar with that. It gives them a pretty much a cover of most things that you will need to understand and interact with any other powered by the apocalypse game. Um, if I can uh, point out one thing that I found personally very important to me, I assume this isn't the first system to do this, but this is the first time I saw it, is that the character sheets have pronouns on them. Yes. And I find that deeply important, I mean, personally as uh, someone MB, but also as just for people in general. As I mentioned, I think this is a good game for anyone, even if you're not too familiar with role-playing games, and to be able to express yourself or your character in that way i think is powerful and important and i i was just really happy to see that it blindsided me oh agreed that was lovely yeah so that is a powered by the apocalypse thing but one thing i will say in that regard is most games do it absolutely awfully. Because Riley themselves is non-binary, I think they've gone out of their way to make sure that there are multiple options on all of the sheets so that it's not like, oh, I have to be a boy or a girl. Oh, suddenly I'm trapped by this sheet in front of me. That's the good thing about this sheet. It's just an empty line. And on that note, a lot of the art is of multiple people of color and a gender expression. And also a lot of the color combinations on some of them are pride flags for various identities, which I really enjoy. Yeah, because I thought there was there, there was an ace one, I think. And I was yeah. like, yes! Yeah. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I like, it was it, just, I, like, really... I that was just really assuming, lovely to but see. I think that's the friend. Yeah. Yes, and mm-hmm. I picked it! <laughs> and I was like, what? That's amazing! Yes. <laughs> so good. I'm glad you mentioned, because it is something that I truly appreciate as well. It's very important. Right. So, to sign off... Yes, so as we wrap up, I'd like everyone to provide us with their top GM tip for running a game of interstitial. And we'll go in the same order that we did in the introductions, starting with Marquez. My tip for running this game for any GMs is to do something you personally love. Your preconceptions of how you should be running this be darned alexis i think my recommendation for this would be something we talked about take your players sit down and pick a media that you like together and go wild just pick the most out there character you really love and just play them to your heart's content this is the system for that um I would say once you pick your setting and then just write a question for it, and it can be an open-ended question and you don't even have to know the answer to it because that's what you're going to figure out. Atlas. Play other Powered by the Apocalypse games first. Fair. Yeah, that's fair. Algy. If you're asking yourself, will the rules allow me to do this? Yes, they will. Sarah. I would really consider doing a world hopping game just to give everybody space and to explore other places like Kingdom Hearts itself. And give everyone space to explore the fandoms and characters they enjoy. Seduce them with your NPCs. Not literally. (laughs) Just write nice characters that people want to be friends with. Amr. I would say whatever world you choose, use it as a jumping off point, not a ceiling. Don't let the world limit the story and just follow the players wherever they go. If they choose to summon a flying spaghetti monster into San Francisco, you just roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Voices at Play, building a table for everyone. Join us next week for a completely different group of players and a completely new story. 
If you've enjoyed the game we're playing, and it sounds like it might be a good fit for you, please check the links in the show notes and on our website where you can find a direct route to order a copy for yourself and get playing today. Voices at Play is completely not-for-profit, but it does incur costs. This show is brought directly to you by the generosity and support of listeners like yourself who support us on our Patreon. $1 pledges are the lifeblood that make this project work. So if you're able, please head over to patreon.com forward slash voices at and pledge to join our little community, working to make the tabletop role-playing space a more diverse, vibrant, and inclusive place for all. Until next time, we'll just keep on playing.